Hello, this is Cheryl again from Another Woman's Story. Wanted to follow up with the last part, although I think uh, my life is probably going to be um, a series of podcasts, if you will, to just uh, give you an update as to what's happening and things like that. But I did want to share the last part or the final part of at least my situation, my story, uh, once I left my ex-husband. So uh, before I get started again, I always want to start out and um, advise that if you do or you find yourself in a situation, a domestic violence situation, uh, that you can call 1-800-799-SAFE for immediate help. So let's talk a little bit about what my life looked like after I left. If you listen to the podcast, I gave you kind of a history of um, what I was like growing up. And then I walked you through several things in my marriage, the first stages and uh, the middle part and then toward the end when I finally decided to leave that Resurrection Sunday. And Resurrection Sunday, I have to say, is a special day for me every single year since that day. It was a day that I was able to start over, uh, kind of a rebirth, at least for me. That's what it feels like or what it felt like. But I ended up, uh, after I left the house that day, I went to a friend's house and um, I remember just, you know, having on my clothes from Easter Sunday. We had on everything from church because remember, we didn't actually go inside the house. We basically said that we were going to go to the store and get Easter baskets and I left to never look back. So I went to a friend's house and I remember her being completely overwhelmed that I left, completely overwhelmed because she said she thought something was going to happen to me if I stayed. And from that moment, I went underground, meaning no one knew where I was. No one even knew that I left. I didn't tell anyone that day at church. And I had been at the church from 19... About 20 years, I would say, uh, at least 18 years. So I pretty much grew up in that church. That was the people were friends, real friends. Um, they were friends of me and with me and my ex-husband. And we were involved in <clears throat> uh, different ministries. Um, but one of the ministries, I think that was the most Interesting was the we were connected to a lot of married couples, so we were couples friends. In other words, they you know the wives were friends, the husbands were friends. Sometimes the friends were flip flopped. In other words, I you know the women were friends with the men first, and then the women you know the men got married and that type of thing. So we had quite a few friendships there. Um, so when I left. Um, 
I did not let anyone know that I was leaving. I didn't let anyone know that I was going underground. I didn't even know what I was going to do. So the plan was for me to just basically go underground for a little bit. So uh, went to a friend's house. We kind of came up with this plan. And I was in hotels for 30 days. Um, I was scheduled to start a new job the day after I left, the day after Resurrection Day or Easter Sunday. I was scheduled to start a new job. I had to call uh, the supervisor. I just happened to have that person's number and told her I wouldn't be in, that I was in a serious situation and I had to leave. So... um, that was very difficult. I was really excited about my new job. I was excited about the promotion. I was excited about being the first one on scene to de- to get started and develop the training class. And, you know, it, it was really something that I had to walk away from, basically. And I kind of felt like I knew I wasn't going back, but I wasn't sure at the time. But I wanted them to hold my job. And it was interesting just because I think in your mind... When you're in the situation, you're in a fog because everything's crazy, but you still have a thought process. So you're outside of yourself thinking about yourself. And from the inside, you're thinking outside of yourself. It's just kind of a weird, um, it's just kind of a weird, um, mental place I think Um, but it was interesting for me just because that job opportunity so I was working primarily in a welfare to work um, environment and I was I had the ability to select the office for the next position and for whatever reason I selected the office that had the sheriff's department in there I think because I knew internally, I think I knew things were escalating and I felt like I would always have an escort to my car. I would always have an escort in the building. You couldn't get past without security. And I think in in the back of my mind, even though I wasn't really dealing with life in the present, I think I, I in the back of my mind was and I was preparing myself for escalation. So. Anyway, I left the I left my job. I couldn't go there. I couldn't start. And I was, you know, extremely disappointed, but I also had to figure out what I was going to do now. I left home. I didn't go back. I didn't have any clothes. I didn't have anything. And I can remember Monday morning going to Target in my Easter clothes, um, getting things for me and my children. I was getting underwear I was getting toothbrushes and toothpaste even though I was staying at a hotel we didn't have anything you know they still had on the clothes we all had on the clothes from the day before we slept in our clothes so just that whole process in day to day you know trying to figure out what I was going to do um it was it was very it was a unique situation uh it was, I don't even know if I was aware that I was embarrassed. I don't even think I was embarrassed because I think at that point it was life or death. I was, 
you know, I stayed in a couple of whole different hotels and I ended up um, being blessed about a week or so in um, because the, the connections that I had had other connections and um, there was a professional athlete and his partner that were friends of through the connection um, that took care of 30 days or three and a half weeks of me staying at a top-notch hotel and that I know was nothing but God. At, at some point in your life, find out who really is in control and it's not you. <laughs> so everything that happened to me I believe was orchestrated by God. I believe that the escape was orchestrated. I believe that if my mom hadn't been in the car that day, and you know, talking to me that day, it probably would have gone on in the house. There wouldn't have been an escape plan. I didn't have one anyway, but I think that the way that things happened, the people that were positioned at the time that they were positioned, it just was it was ordered. My steps were ordered. I think they continue to be ordered even in this process now. But um, certainly during that time, I was um, I was concerned when I left for my friends. I was concerned that my ex was going to go and do something to them. And I didn't tell them because I felt like I was protecting them. I felt like they didn't know who he was, who he really was. And I wouldn't have been believable. And certainly if we didn't go over to explain our situation together, that they would have believed his story and not mine. And he may have been able to convince them to tell them where I was. So I couldn't tell them where I was. And uh, I lost a couple friendships because of that. I had a couple of people that were extremely um, offended that I didn't let them know. I don't think they got, I don't think that they understood what my concern was. I think they felt like they were close enough to me and I should have shared that. However, I felt like the rage that I saw they never had seen before. And so I don't know that I trusted what their response would have been if he had become enraged because they knew where I was and he didn't. I I didn't want to risk that. And so, um, you know, when, when people don't understand and you're in a situation like that, you move on because you have to. And I had to just say they don't get it and it's okay. And I let the friendships go because I couldn't be concerned about trying to explain that I'm sorry that I'm in this life or death situation and you weren't on the list to call. You know what I mean? I I, I just, I had to let it go. My life was so much more important than trying to explain what I really was in or really trying to share with you this person's real personality. Uh, I was on the run. I was on the, you know, what am I going to do? I was in a whole nother place. 
And so I didn't have time to apologize or try to explain why your house was not the house that I went to or why I was down for 30 days and I did not call you. I didn't have time. I couldn't explain that. My head was just filled with thoughts about now I have to put my kids in a different school. Now I have to, you know, I can't keep them out of school, so I've got to enroll them somewhere. That kind of thing. I mean, the life or death uh, process that you go through when you leave is way, way more intense than the fact that somebody's ticked off somewhere else. Like you really, when you think about what you have to focus on, that person's emotions and feelings don't even matter. And I know that as a result of that situation, of that process, of that transition, that black or white is really all that I can tolerate. That's all that my being can tolerate. So wishy-washy, whether it's a friend, a situation, a, you know, those kind of events for me now, um, I don't, I, I can't manage wishy-washy or middle ground or I, I just now operate in, ops, in absolutes. It is or it isn't. It's true or it's not. You, you're coming or you're not. I mean, so for me, um, I no longer operate in what I think you might be saying or feeling. I usually am way more direct in trying to find out what are you saying? What do you mean? Are you going to show up for me? Are you going to be this person? And so it's really changed my perspective on a whole lot of things. So I moved. I was underground for about 30 days. I went to move in with my mom after the 30 days. And during that time, he was uh, showing up to friends' jobs. He's standing in the doorway of one of my friend's job she looked up and he's in the doorway um he went to my grandparents house crying and you know these people didn't even know I had left so to see him impromptu showing up they don't even know what he's talking about you know he's where's Cheryl they don't even know they they hadn't talked to me but it wasn't strange that they hadn't talked to me because I didn't talk to them every day so they're like she's at she's not at home You know, these people didn't have a clue. And uh, I believe he was on a rampage for a little bit. So underground was probably the best and safest place for me to be. Everything was still in the house. I didn't even care. Um, Eventually, I ended up going back to the house. Um, While I was gone, I filed another restraining order. And... um, I was, you know, he wasn't supposed to be in the house. So I ended up going back to the house to get a few things. But uh, primarily, I wasn't going back there. I saw evidence that he had actually been staying in the house. So he actually didn't follow the restraining order, which is another key thing. Um, It's it's really just a piece of paper if the person is not a rule follower and generally they're not so there needs to be other things in place if you file a restraining order 
because nine times out of ten, the perpetrator is not compliant. And you can't trust that because they have this piece of paper, they're going to stay away. Nine times out of ten, they're in a desperate place and they're not um, they're not even thinking um, that they were going to get you know caught or they'll think they're thinking I just want to talk to you one time or I just want to see you whatever that is and that desperation could turn into a situation that could be detrimental to your very life so um moved in with my mom and decided that that was not where I wanted to be uh long term She's angry. Uh, I'm trying to sort through what I'm going to actually do. Uh, I can't I can't seem to get my thoughts together because I'm always, um, you know, I'm dealing with the kids. I'm dealing with them uh, trying to ask questions about their dad. I'm trying to put them in school and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do about income. Um not really sure that I'm going to use my mom's address, just so many things. Um, because we're married, um, there's a concern about a custody issue. But once I filed the restraining order, then their kids were in my custody. I didn't have to worry about that. So temporarily, you know, they were under my care and that part was okay. I could enroll them in school with no problem. Um, but staying with my mom was just not a good idea and I needed to just clear my head and be in a place where either in a place where it was neutral or a place that um, I had on my own So I decided to move. I decided that it would be much better if I just, I moved. So I moved about six states away. I think about six states away from the west to the south I moved. And um, it actually was in my mind a better place to be a brand new start no one knew who I was Uh, I have to admit that I was extremely paranoid however when I moved for whatever reason um, well let me back up a little bit prior to me moving I had to go to court again had to file a restraining order and make it permanent I had to request Um, separation, legal separation. And that wasn't difficult for me. I I was, you know, at the place where I was done. I I didn't, I knew I wasn't going back home. I knew I wasn't going back to the marriage. I knew that this part, this chapter of my life was over. And I was comfortable with that. Um, The day that I went to court, he was in the courtroom and um, 
what was really interesting to me was the number of people that were in the room kind of for the same thing. A lot of the women in that room had filed a restraining order and the court date was set up so that they could either extend the temporary restraining or extend the restraining order. So initially when you file, it's called a temporary restraining order or a TRO. And then you can keep one in place as a restraining order. Uh, The temporary restraining order generally was at that time 48 hours. Um, And within 48 hours, you have to show up to court. You have to, you know, let the judge know if you want to extend it or not. Well, in my case, um, I decided that I wanted to extend it and I wanted to file for legal separation. So I kind of did that as a combo court date um, event. However, it was interesting just to be in the room with other women that had filed a restraining order that actually dropped the restraining order. And they were definitely intimidated by their partners. They were in the courtroom. These guys are in the courtroom. Some of them looked like they were part of gangs. They had their boys with them. They're sitting in the corner. And the judge is saying, so you want to drop the restraining order? And they would say yes. And the judge said, so... According to this court record, this man has broken your nose. He dragged you through the house. Your three-year-old was watching and was there at the house with you. Is that correct? She would say yes. And the judge said, so you want to drop the restraining order? And I could tell by the body language she probably didn't, but the person that she was connected to in the courtroom, in the court you know, in the courtroom was, was with his friends. They, they looked like they were going to take her down, take her out. Maybe they posed a threat basically. And, you know, out of intimidation, she said, I want to drop the restraining order. So the judge said, well, you recognize that if you drop the restraining order, we're going to send child protective services to your home to take your child out of the home. And the young lady said, yes, I understand that. She was asked by the judge, so you are willing to risk your child being taken out of the home because it's not a safe environment and I can't by law allow your child to stay in that home. You're not going to keep the restraining order in place? No. She said, no, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And there were three or four women that did the same thing. Every now and then there would be one person that might say they were keeping it in place. But most of the women that were in courtroom in the courtroom dropped the charges or dropped the restraining order. By the time they got to me, I was livid. I was livid. I was so angry that a person could put their children at risk for the sake of going back. And they or that they were so afraid that they were willing to go back and risk their children. So when it was my turn, my response was, no, I'm not dropping the restraining order. I was so mad um, at the process. I was so mad that the guys in the room 
They're just the things that were in place at that time um, that I felt like were so intimidating to the ladies in that in that courtroom. I said that I was standing up not only for myself but for them too, for the ones that weren't strong enough or were too afraid to. I was standing up for that, for myself. So, in any case, I before I moved, I went to court, kept the restraining order in place. However, my ex knew what city and state. He didn't know my address. He tried to fight the judge on that, and I specifically said in the courtroom, uh, I asked the judge if the if the if they were recording the court case which I knew they were and she said yes and or he said yes and I said so make a note of this if he finds out where I live he's gonna kill me so if you allow him to get my address my blood is going to be on your hands. I put that in the court case. And I knew that saying that uh, was going to give me the liberty that I needed to be able to go where I needed to go without incident. And I told the judge, I'm willing to have conversations over the phone. He can talk to the kids whenever he wants to, but I'm not giving him my address. I'm not doing that. Okay, so fast forward. I moved to a new location. Uh, Set up utilities in a pseudo name with my address because I wasn't sure if he was going to be trying to find me. Uh, You know, uh, so all of that. Put the kids in school. Everything's going great. Probably he called quite often. We had, he would talk to me first. Of course, at that time, the kids were really small. So he would have conversations with me and I would tell him, you know what? I, I'm not getting back with you. I'm not, I don't care what you're saying. doesn't matter. I'm not coming home. I'm never coming home. So do what you need to do. Start over, whatever it is, but I'm not coming home. We had these conversations. I don't know how many times. He decided that he was going to let the church know that he was moving because we were reconciling. I think the church, I'm sure at some point they figured out we weren't together and he let some people know, I guess, or I don't even know how it happened. But apparently they bought bought his story and helped him get a moving truck to move across country to where I was. So he moved in the state next to the state I was in and asked if he could see the kids. One of the things that I was intentional about was not letting him, if he had the ability to see his kids, I was willing to assist in that process. I never kept him from them. So we would meet halfway, first mistake. We would meet halfway and I would go by myself to meet him halfway so that he could see the kids. He would get the kids for the weekend, take them back to where he was. I would go back to my house. And when Sunday came, we would repeat that process. 
And at this point, he would give the kids to me. I would bring them back, you know. So this is the first problem. And this is something that happens in a domestic violence situation. You bend the rules. One or both of you bends the rules. Now, under restraining order, technically, he wasn't even supposed to be within 500 yards of me. So for me to go down to meet him, to exchange the kids, anything could have happened. Um, Anything could have happened once I gave them to him. Anything could have happened because he was still mad at me. I mean, I in my mind, I was thinking I, I wanted to let the kids see their dad and I need a break. We've got four kids. They're little. I don't want to deal with this every single weekend. I have an option. Who's going to take care of them better than their own father? So I, I'm doing this for a few weeks. And at one point he said he was going to come all the way up to the state where we lived. And I was even more elated because I didn't have to drive so far. So he comes up unbeknownst to me. He's driving around with the kids in the car, trying to make them familiar and find out where we were living. Of course, they didn't let me know that. And by the time one of them slipped and told me that, um, we had been apart for probably over a year at this point. I hadn't filed for divorce yet because in the new state, I had to be there at least six months to file. So I had to wait when I got there. So one weekend, he decides he's going to come all the way up. He told me he was going to get a job in the state where I was. I was a little more relaxed just because we had been exchanging with no incident, no issue. And so him coming all the way up again for that weekend was not a red flag for me. But when it came time to picking the kids up on that Sunday, he kept calling and asking me to go with him to to eat, to grab a bite to eat for Mother's Day. And I had to keep telling him, I'm not interested. I'm not going to go. Well, why can't we go, you know, grab a bite to eat? You know, me, you and the kids, blah, blah, blah. Well, I learned at this point, I had gone to a couple of classes for counseling once I moved. And one of the things that it said was, when you have separated yourself or... Uh, divorced from your partner that you don't call you don't call on them to do the menial tasks that they used to do everything needs to be cut off no interaction for trivial matters like changing the light bulb taking the trash out things like that it's done it's over with and you can't go to dinner and lunch like that with this person until some significant time has passed because one of you is still believing that you're going to get back together. So when he called and asked me if I wanted to go out to eat, no, I don't want to go out to eat. Well, we can do this for Mother's Day. Okay, Mother's Day for me is every single day. I don't have to celebrate Mother's Day. I'm good. Well, he wanted to, he kept calling. and Then finally he asked me who was telling me to tell him no. Okay, so I've been away from him for over a year and a half. And uh, I I don't recognize necessarily that he is escalating, but he's definitely escalating. I've been apart from him for so long that I've forgotten his pattern. However, 
I did notice that he was just so irritating to me. I was so irritated by his behavior and probably because he, I hadn't been used to interacting with anyone like that. So anyway, that particular weekend, like I said, he had the kids that weekend. I went to go pick them up from where he was and he was staying at a, an extended stay. For some reason, when I went to pick them up, I wore mismatched clothes. Now, why would I do that? I'm in my right mind. I know what I'm doing. I think subconsciously, I felt like he couldn't convince me because I wasn't going to be dressed appropriately. And I get to the place where he's staying and uh, I go inside the hotel to get the kids. And I'll go in the, you know, get to his room. There's a double bedroom. They stay with him at the hotel. There's a double bedroom. And they're all sitting on the same bed, kind of crouched together. Now, they never sat like that. They didn't, they just, I was trying to figure out why they were in this cluster. They never sat like that before. But I told them, let's go. And uh, we left. We were going down on the escal- on the elevator to go downstairs. He walks to the door with us and decides to get on the elevator. He had this bag with him, like a duffel bag and I wasn't really paying attention I figured he was going to the gym or going to work out or whatever and um, so we go downstairs to my car and we put the kids in the car he still wants to talk he wants to have a conversation with me so now he's asking me about somebody that I'm currently seeing he wants to know details he wants to know you know he starts talking about the man throwing a bath a football to my son and all of this stuff and I'm I'm just thinking okay I don't know where you're going with this I'm still not paying attention now remember I'm, I've been away for a while I'm looking at him saying I don't know where you're going with this but you will always be there dad that's it you know whether I'm with somebody or not marry somebody or not your your responsibility is these kids right here so you know, I'd had enough really. I mean, we've been going back and forth and we're standing outside the car. The kids are inside the car. They've got school the next day. And I I finally just say, you know what? Let me take them home. We can talk about this later on the phone. I, I really need to get them back home to get to bed and, you know, get ready for school tomorrow. So I go to, he goes to, to, put the baby I had the youngest one on the hood while we were talking he put her back in her car seat everybody else is in the car we're I start up the car and he opens the passenger door and gets inside the car as I'm getting ready to pull off and pulls a gun and puts it to my head and he said nobody's getting out this mfing car what are you talking about? Gun to my head. He tells me to call the guy that I'm seeing. Call him right now. Call him right now. Oh my God. I'm sitting in the seat like, I can't believe this is happening. I don't know what the heck is this. I don't know. I can't figure out if this is real or fake. It's in my mind. I'm sitting there thinking, 
this is not my life. I'm about to die today. And he clicks the gun back to say, call him now. I reach down in my purse to grab my phone and the phone starts ringing. So it's one of my friends and I'm screaming in the phone. He's trying to kill me. He's trying to kill me. He grabs my phone, jumps out of my car. And for some reason, whatever reason, I jump out of the car to get my phone. So I know I'm not in my right mind. My kids are screaming. The the car we're in is rocking. The van is rocking because they're screaming and everybody is just crazy. He pulls off. I go back to the van. I'm just out of it. People come out of the hotel. Then we have to, you know, file a police report, all of this stuff. It's, they take the kids in a different room. Police take me in one room. They have the kids in another room. And I can remember one of my kids, as we're walking in the hotel, the manager comes running out after everything was over. And she asked me if I wanted to call the police. And I remember one of my kids saying, don't take my dad. And I just had a feeling that this, this is, they're going to, it's going to be their story against mine. I don't, I'm hoping that they tell the truth, but I feel like now that might not happen. So anyway, the police come, they interview me, they interview the kids. And after the interview with the kids, the officer comes out and said, they said they didn't see anything. Of course, my story is different. So we, um, they put out an APB for his arrest. They couldn't find him. Um, that also happened on a Sunday. So apparently that, or that happened on a, yes, on a Sunday. So apparently that night he pulled over to some industrial area. He was on some antidepressants. He took more than he should have and then drank alcohol behind it with the intention I think I don't know what his intention was I'm thinking maybe that was to commit suicide I don't know the police found him that same day just perusing the area where he was he had thrown the gun out he had thrown my phone out so they didn't know anything about you know the incident and um, they took him to the hospital to have his stomach pumped. And um, because it was a Sunday, the information had not gotten to the police department about what had just happened. So they pumped his stomach and they let him go. So what happens after that? I go home, uh, leave the hotel with all of the children that I have, my children, take them home. And I'm not, I don't know that I'm processing any of it. I don't know what they're processing. Um, it's 8, 8.30 in the evening again they've got to go to school the next day 
I'm functioning as if this was just a crazy incident. I was just in a car accident or we had just seen, you know, had an exhausting day type of scenario. And I decide to go ahead and put them to bed. Um, and we go to school. They go to school the next day. Um, I got a couple of calls when I got home. Remember, I don't have my cell phone. He's calling through my cell phone to people that we know and telling them he's going to take his life. Um, I don't know if he told them what happened, but basically he told them he was going to take his life. And I had a home phone, so people are calling me and I can tell, okay, now he's in the L's, now he's in the P's. You know, he's going through, I guess, the alphabet and looking through my phone and using it to call various people. And I can remember one of my friends calling me to say, you know, Cheryl, your husband just called me. He just, he's distraught over what happened and he really wasn't going to harm you, but he really needs compassion right now because he's talking about taking his life and, um, you know, you really need to be coming with passion for him. And and what's really interesting to me is the way that um, the person that deals with the trauma the most is the person that has suffered. But it's really interesting to me how the person that seems to get the most support is the person that does it. <laughs> Um, I'm listening to my friend of over 20 years tell me that I need to have passion or I need to come with passion for the person that tried to take my life. Not, Not years later are they telling me this. They're telling me hours later. I mean, I had just walked in the door. I just, you know, finally got to a place where I guess I was safe at that point. I mean, I'm thinking I was safe anyway. Uh, And this has just happened, and you're calling me to tell me that I need to have compassion for this person. Um, Needless to say, I gave him a few uh, words, (laughs) and that relationship is, I don't even know what to call it to this day. It's just really interesting. But... I let him know that, first of all, he knew me first. Second of all, this person just held a gun to my head. And I don't have any passion or compassion for an individual that would do that to me in front of my kids or behind their backs. That I didn't care what happened to him as a result of what happened to me. And how dare he call me to even suggest that I should have anything but anger behind the incident. Our friendship has been forever changed by that phone call. Um, But I digress. My children went to bed. 
I went to bed. They went to school the next day. I went to work the next day as if nothing happened. Because remember, one of the things that happens when you're in a situation, when you're in a domestic violence situation, is that you function in a dysfunction. And without having conversations to just a few key people, that would have been another situation, another incident that I brushed under the rug, that I didn't address, that I didn't try to do anything different about. Um, But I had to have a couple of conversations. I had to go ahead and get another cell phone. I had to, you know, even though my life went on, there were things that I had to have. So after having a conversation with my sister, I decided that I would pursue that and try to take measures to get him caught. I didn't know where to start, but one of the people that he decided to call when he was, um, once the incident took place, he decided to call a mutual friend who basically was calling to see how I was doing and in that conversation. And I don't know if it was a slip. I don't know if he meant to tell me, but that he was in touch with my ex-husband. That apparently he had checked himself into a behavioral health facility. And so I am at work talking to him about, you know, what the conversation is like, basically just having casual conversation with this person just because I don't want to let on that I'm trying to get information from him. But at this point, he's the only one talking to him. So we're having conversation. He calls every couple, three days, let me know. He's talked to him again. He likes the facility where he is. You know, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm livid because this other person that is just tried to take my life is living the life nobody knows what happened he's you know because of HIPAA laws he's protected all of this stuff so I finally after a couple of days said well what's the name of the place where he is and the response was I don't I don't know you know I'll I said, well, why don't you ask him? I'm wondering if he's still in this state or if he's somewhere else. He said, okay. A couple of days later, we have a conversation. And uh, said, he said, well, he's, he said he's doing good. He's at the blah, blah, blah facility. As I'm talking to the individual, I'm typing it in my computer because... I'm trying to pull up the name of the place. I'm at work. Remember, I didn't take any days off of this incident. So I'm pulling up the name of the place, found the name of the place. What the name of the place was the address. So I quickly got off the phone and said, you know, we'll we'll talk later. Thanks so much for calling. Well, so I call the private investigator that's working on my case or that has been assigned to my case. I call him, tell him, this is where he is. This is the address. He said, oh, I know that place. Great. 
He said, we're going to head over there, but I can't talk to you right now because I'm at the scene of a murder. And we're under, we're on a murder investigation. I said, let me tell you something. If you don't head over there right now, you'll be heading to another scene of a murder. So I suggest that whatever you're doing, you can leave for a little bit and go to this facility and get him. He said, duly noted, got off the phone. He heads over there, apparently calls me back within, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours. And he said, Cheryl, we got him. He said he was in a facility. He's in the facility. He is in the facility that you told me about. He said that he, um, uh, the police were not able initially to even get past the desk because of HIPAA laws. They couldn't verify that he was there. He said, but as he, we got there and as we were talking to the clerk there, I told them that it was part of um, an attempted murder situation. And as we were explaining that to the front desk, he comes walking out. He said, because that was the day he was being released from that facility to go, um, you know, back into society, whatever. And as he was being released, we were walking in about to be admitted inside. You know, they were going to let them inside the doors. He said, and when he saw us, he walked over and confessed. I was blown away. So you don't have to say anything because he confessed to everything. He confessed to taking the phone. He confessed to having the gun. He confessed to throwing the gun. I mean, all of that. He confessed to all of it. And he said, and we've arrested him. So thank you. (laughs) That, that was a little bit of a relief. Took him to jail. He was in jail for two and a half years. And that created, I don't, uh, I can't even, I can't even explain the roller coaster that occurred um, as a result of that. I think that I was, even though I knew he was locked up, now I'm thinking about everything I learned in the class. Now I'm thinking about the fact that I didn't know that even though I wasn't with him, he was still escalating. I'm thinking about if he tried to take my life before, would he try to do, I mean, it was so many things, so many thoughts that went through my mind and, um, processing that and trying to figure out if I needed to take my kids to counseling and trying to figure out myself if I needed counseling. And, you know, I had started a process when I left, um, when I initially left and moved, I started a process to go to counseling because when I thought about it, I thought about how when I left and decided to pursue divorce, that I didn't have the moments that people have when they talk about, you know, there was this breakdown and there was this, you know, I was just on the floor crying and all this stuff. So I'm thinking, you know, I didn't have that moment. So perhaps... 
I need to talk to somebody to see if maybe I'm keeping this under my hat or I'm, you know, stuffing or whatever. I go to the psych, I went to a psychiatrist and went to three different sessions. And the lady told me that I was fine. You know, uh, she said, you're, you're really, you know, animated when you're telling me what happened. And, you know, I really enjoy speaking with you and I don't see anything, you know, I don't see anything going on. I don't, I don't have, I'm not picking up any, you know, nothing. So I'm thinking this is really odd because there should be some kind of residual from dealing with the person that, you know, has been abusive and, you know, all these things. She said, but you seem to be adapting pretty well. I don't, I don't see any issues or, um, just thinking, okay. All right. (laughs) So the next time that I went to her, obviously was after the incident and, like you might be now hearing this, she's completely blown away. And what she said was, you know, you have a really interesting way of telling your story. Um, all of this has happened to you and you're telling me like you're walking out of this dream and you can tell me exactly what happened in the dream. I, I don't know why that is. I don't know why it's monotone. I don't know why it comes out this way. Um, and maybe it's to keep myself calm as I tell my story. Um, but this is, this is reality. Um, you know, there are other things I don't want to go into, you know, after, after he got out of jail and all that stuff, there's, there's, there's a million things I could share. I wanted to make sure that you heard my story. I want to let you know that this is still a work in progress. Um, Have I graduated from that moment? Absolutely. Have I grown from that moment? Absolutely. But am I changed from that moment? Absolutely. I don't know that my perspective will ever change back to how it was before I experienced what I've experienced. And life is you know, a series of experiences. So uh, I don't take it lightly that my life was spared because I know people personally that experienced the same thing and they're not here today. So the purpose for me sharing my story is so that their lives were not in vain and so that someone else can get out before their story matches those of the ones that did not make it. I'm determined to make sure that what I share impacts you in such a way that you are moved to either change your current situation or help someone get out of theirs before you become and fall victim to this situation. It's important that you hear every single word that I've shared. If you are moved to share your story from any perspective, please make sure to message me. Please make sure to share this podcast with everyone you know. We're all affected, whether we were the victim 
whether we were the person in the situation, whether we heard it, we've seen it, everyone that we know has been affected by it. And it's necessary that I tell my story so that you can tell your story. I have to tell my story so that you don't have a story. But my story and your story is every woman's story.